0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host Christopher Fisher. On today's episode we are going to be doing a year in review. It's like our 300th episode and we started at episode like 100 so we're we're probably more like at 230. But we're kind of just going to go over kind of what we've established the last hundred or so episodes, and go over our progress, things that we've accomplished, things that we've set out, and things that we have given the world, which is is fantastic. I think we have accomplished a lot in within the last year or so. And uh, it's good to kind of review things once in a while to just catch everyone up to speed, to point out uh, highlights that people could go a flag down and watch if uh if they're interested in that sort of thing we have pulled up the god is open webpage. that is GodIsOpen.com. some people just just stay all on youtube or whatnot like that or soundcloud wherever it's hosted on your apple itunes Whatever, but there is the blog and the blog is active. Let's go to our resources, Quick Verse Reference. So Quick Verse Reference, this is uh, a work in progress. I think we got over 60,000 words. We'll we'll just uh, run a quick quick word count real quick and see where we are at. But this Quick Verse Reference is set up. It is designed to give people easy ways to get information about specific verses and so everything's hyperlinked if you go look at the uh, hyperlinks here it says genesis 1 1 and this is a timelessness proof text so you could click on that and then you could read what it says about timelessness if this uh, proof text actually proves what it uh, purports to prove and how this works is there are open theist proof texts, which defend the open theist reading of those proof texts. And then there's proof texts used by classical theism, which we discuss, we, we give examples. It's it, it That's that's one thing I always try to do, is so that we're not straw manning. We, we give an example of someone doing what we claim that they're doing, and then we talk about that. And then you could refute something that actually exists in the material world rather than pretending something exists that does not. But this verse reference, so we got it looks like 56,000 words. Currently Uh, I'll have to make sure that it's updated, but go through that. Look at those verses. If you think there's verses to add, just send me those verses and we'll try to get those added to the index. This is really nice because these hyperlinks, if you click on them and you grab the link that's up in the browser, You could just copy and paste that anywhere. And when people click on that link, it'll go straight to that verse. So very useful tool. There's a lot of people who have given me positive feedback. This is a tool that they use and look at and they're able to reference and it's quick and it's easy and it's not supposed to be overly wordy and it's all in one page as well. So you could print a PDF or something like that or read through it. I don't know if you want to read through it. But it's a pretty good tool and it is always growing and and fairly useful. So the next thing that we want to talk about is our debate in Isaiah. A couple things that came out of this debate I think are very useful for open theism at large. So one thing to really come out of this debate was a clear definition of classical omniscience such that it can't be mistaken for something else. So that any deviation from this definition will mean open theism is true. People have to own their definitions of omniscience. Classical theism can't just pretend omniscience is whatever convenient definition for whatever verse that they're looking at at the time. A lot of these verses contradict Ex- explicitly what they believe about omniscience. If God watches, uh, that that's gaining information. That's not ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. Maybe we should add exhaustive in there, but I, I think that's probably a given. Ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. That little clip, that little phrase, succinctly defines the classical views of omniscience. If you're deviating from that you don't believe in classical omniscience and you are an open theist. A lot of times you're dealing with people who don't understand classical theism. They want to affirm their traditional views of omniscience. They don't even know what the traditional views of omniscience are. So a lot of times you got to actually teach them their own theology before they become open to open theism. It's like this is not what you believe. You have to often convert Calvinists to Calvinism before you can convert them away. Because often they have a skewed notion of what Calvinist metaphysics actually teaches. And so you teach Calvinism to Calvinists. It's great. But this Isaiah debate was great in so many other ways as well. I had actually a decent opponent uh, who's intelligent and very much like the man. And uh, he's a good fellow. But uh, we talked about Isaiah. And basically, this is the Calvinist strong proof text. Whenever they want to prove the eternal, un- ungenerated knowledge, uh, God declaring all things from the beginning, they turn to Isaiah and they grab this little passage about God declaring things from the beginning. But in the Isaiah debate, we stressed very heavily that those terms are defined in context. Beginning is defined. God says, I declared to you people, In the beginning, God declares two people. So the beginning is not the beginning of all time. It's not some unheard declaration into the void. It's not some sort of proclamation to nothing. It's two people. And there's a purpose in this declaration such that people can learn and know and see what God is doing, what God has said that he would do, and then see him follow through. There's purpose that there is purpose to God's declarations. And the purpose is to try attempt to convince people to worship him. So that's, that's a fairly different concept than what the Calvinist wants to bring to that proof text where this is just, they're proof positive that God declares all things from the beginning of all time. Uh, not one small little leaf falls from a tree without God meticulously controlling it. Not what that verse is about. Not what that entire passage is about altogether. When you read the passage, you see God counting. God lamenting. God, uh, he's, he's saddened. He, he He's hopeful for the future. He wants his people to return. Uh, he gets wearied out by his people. This is just normal fare for the Bible. And to grab the little phrase, to pull it out of context, as Edwin Hatch said, it's building inverted pyramids. You're, you're making your proof text prove too much. The context doesn't support ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. And that's important too, that phrase, because when they want to have God declaring something as the definition of omniscience, right they say see god declares it from the beginning therefore he knows all things from the beginning well declaring it's not non-discursive it's not eternal you know there's not an eternal he's, he's saying something in time it's not uh, ungenerated there's 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 different thoughts that uh, come to different uh, conclusions which come to some sort of some sort of action it's discursive so right away that verse that proof text that they're trying to use for this this grand attribute falls apart just by basic scrutiny so isaiah we are taking isaiah back we, we understand isaiah better than them we understand the context they don't understand the context they they don't uh, want to define their terms from the context they want to bring in their theology onto these verses and when we take their verses back romans 9 you can do that again God has discursive thoughts within Romans 9. That would be an interesting debate if Romans 9 is teaching open theism. And it's great that we frame these debates in this way. Does this passage of the Bible teach open theism? Does the Bible teach... Limited omniscience, or does the Bible teach that God doesn't know the entire future? Because when you frame it in a philosophical mindset, you just get bogged down in the weeds of them philosophizing about things they they do not understand. On that note, on that note, one of our key episodes. I'm going to just type "podcast" here in God is open, uh, the Open Theism Circle. We're going to type in "podcast" in the search terms. And that's just going to pull up every single podcast in order that we have uh, posted. And so that's that's a quick reference if, if you need a way to scroll through the different titles in a, in a very convenient manner. But we do have a podcast that we did within the last 100 episodes or so about Molinism. And uh, the modal fallacy fallacy is, is the name of that uh, episode. And so I'm just going to throw that into our search term, modal fallacy. And so a lot of times when you're dealing with people who consider themselves Molinists, uh, they want to to have their cake and eat it too. They want to have uh, necessary events and they want to have events that meet every single definition of necessary event, but have those events also conditional. So the modal fallacy fallacy, podcast actually goes through this concept and makes crystal color tries to shoot down all their straw men they always say oh you're saying the knowledge is causative no that's that is not what we're saying in fact that that is the opposite of what we're saying we're saying your system necessitates that god himself is in fate he is as much subject to fate as everything else his knowledge uh, doesn't play into the equation except for it tells us something about reality he has knowledge of Events that can't be otherwise can God not do what He knows He will do? God is subject to fate, and the modal fallacy. Fallacy goes through, and he I pull out William Lane Craig's definitions of everything, such as necessity. We 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 want to take uh, their definitions of what contingency is, what what the modal fallacy actually is, and it goes through and explains how their claims that we are committing the modal fallacy is uh, completely skewed. It's 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 not a rational counter-argument. They don't have consistent definitions, and they can't have consistent definitions. They want their cake and to eat it too. They want to, by definition, by changing word meaning, and um, having very selective meanings applied to different words, events that can't be otherwise than what God eternally knows are not necessary events. They have... Uh, possibility to be something else, except for there's no probability, no probability that they could be anything other than what they are. And it was really funny. We got that a uh, Calvinist who says that uh, he said it on a Facebook group, and I, I when I asked the question, I said, "Is something with zero possibility a probability, or does something with uh, zero possibility to be otherwise is it is it a probability that it is otherwise?" And uh, the guy said, uh, you have to be an open theist to believe that. So basic definitions of words, if you're an open theist, you believe word meanings. If there's no possibility of something, if there's no probability of something happening, there's no possibility of it happening. No probability, no possibility by definition. And uh, so if if you like word definitions, you're an open theist another thing that we covered uh, quite extensively throughout the last 100 episodes or so is uh the ancient semitic ideas of the spiritual realm we we live in a modern world we live in a world where everyone wants to talk about atoms and molecules uh, these are concepts that weren't available in the semitic mindset in in their world uh, the the material world and the spiritual world didn't have such sharp divides that uh we contemplate now. We ourselves—I had that episode with my brother about physics. My my brother, the the doctor in physics. We we talked about how we ourselves don't understand the material worlds. For us to make such sharp distinctions in our minds, what is material and what is uh, spiritual—that is completely arbitrary. This is just us creating categories and then trying to force things in. We don't have no hard evidence that the material world we don't know what the material world is there's no hard evidence that the material and spiritual are quite different things what kind of overlap there are and in the Semitic mindset we examined quite often that there was this significant overlap there's people physically being brought to heaven right the spirit of god hovers over the earth in genesis 1 there was overlap between the spiritual and divine. We talked about even divine dirt, the holy haunting grounds, haunting like you you, you go and you you hang out there. haunting grounds of the divine beings. you know, that's, that's what the holy ground was. It's holy because that's where the gods lived. The holy mountain, that's where Moses found God. And so the the links between the material and the divine world, I think we're very crucial, a, a crucial concept for us to understand and uh, explore throughout the lat. You, you don't hear this stuff. You don't go to church and you don't hear anything about a Semitic mindset and the material world, anything like that. So this is probably the only place I haven't heard it anywhere else. I have to, I have to do all my own research. And so it'd be nice. It'd be nice if someone did my research for me. That'd be nice. So also on our list of breakthroughs is the idea that Calvinists compartmentalized their proof text. And so going back to the Isaiah debate, we look at uh, what happened there was his proof text that he used for a strong divine predestination of all things. It, it didn't follow through with other tenets of Calvinism. Discursive thought is evident in those texts, and uh, he he wants, (laughs) any Calvinist, they want to grab a proof text and they want to have it as a single use. They compartmentalize it because if it was applied to their overall systematic theology, it's incompatible. It's, It's a single use verse. It doesn't holistically fit their theology. God is watching the world. Well, watching is gaining information from outside of himself. And so that that really falls through. And in those verses where I, the Lord, do not change, and you you look at Him, He's talking. That, that's discursive. He's communicating something. In time, uh, all those ideas they they don't they don't mesh with the rest of Calvinist metaphysics. So these proof texts have to be compartmentalized. We need a theology that takes each verse holistically. It looks at how that plays against various aspects of our theology in different areas. It it shouldn't be just single use. It shouldn't be proof texting in the most vulgar, vulgar definition of proof texting, where you grab one verse, pull it out of context to mean one thing. Instead, we should be looking at the broader picture. I think open theism does this way better, much better than any other systematic theology out there, because other systematic theologies They attempt to force God into formulas, whereas open theism is more open. God is a person. God can have a varying set of tools in order to deal with problems. God can react with emotion, react in unpredictable ways. He's not an input-output robot where you're just pushing things into him and getting outputs from him. Remember, in the Psalms, people have to call God to account. They say, why have you turned your face? Turn your face back to us, Lord. They, they call him to move. They call him to action. He responds. He doesn't have to respond. He doesn't always respond. A lot of times he does respond in the Psalms. Sometimes not. Sometimes not. But God is a person. So a person can have what we consider inconsistencies. They can be considered good. And that good doesn't have to be a metaphysical attribute. It could be an evaluation from a creature. So that's another thing that we did explore is evaluative attributes rather than metaphysical attributes. Everyone wants to make everything in the Bible about metaphysics. It's just not. Not everything in the Bible is about metaphysics. Speaking of that, when we turn to Genesis 3, we see the effects of Adam's sin. He is cast out of the garden. And in Romans, Paul talks about how from Adam, his sin, death spread to all men. Maybe, maybe perhaps we put out there that Paul is not talking about metaphysics. He's talking about physically, physically mankind was separated from the tree and therefore we all die. We were separated from the tree of life and that's how death spread to all men. Very important concept, uh, very, very uh, critical if we want to eliminate, eliminate, metaphysics in paul i think we should do our best when we're reading these various authors of the bible to just try to run through a thought process what would they be talking about if they're not talking about metaphysics salvation well maybe salvation's just your name's in the book of life and you're not going to get killed on on the second coming something like that i uh, may maybe it's not this metaphysical ooh, you start glowing and there's a spiritual awakening inside you uh I think, I think that's a mistake to take everything metaphysically. And uh, I think that's a big mistake in Christianity. They say, oh, you must be born again. And they, they're imagining some sort of metaphysical process by which uh, there's a spirit that moves through your body and enlightens your body. And now you have access to the divine realm. I do not think. I do not think that's what the, the authors of the Bible are writing about, a metaphysical th- change. I think... I think they're more practically minded. So practically minded versus metaphysically minded. I think the authors of the Bible were talking practicality. Usefulness. Usefulness. So if Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he's not giving him a lesson on metaphysics. Oh, you must be born again. He's giving him practical advice what Nicodemus can do in order to become saved. Practicality just think of it this way. Is the Bible useful or not? Is it just teaching us dull metaphysics that we have no use, we can't do anything with, we're just like, oh, that. I guess that's neat? Or is it teaching us a way of life, how to act, how to think, what to do, practicality, something that's useful, something that we could do something with? The Bible, the Bible, from what I gather, is is a practical manual rather than a metaphysical manual rather than a manual of doctrine you could get doctrine out of it but it's not a manual of doctrine it's not teaching you a holy trinity or anything like that it's not teaching you penal substitution you know people try to do their little atonement theories throughout the bible it's just it it does it doesn't just explicitly teach these things people have to read them out of it because they're taking a practical manual that they're trying to build some sort of system out of. They're, they're systematizing a practical manual. And that, that doesn't always work very well. Sometimes you run into conflict. Another thing we did within the last 100 episodes is we did a deeper dive into the Neoplatonist influence in the Church Fathers. We did a whole uh, episode on Augustine and a huge section from his book in which he talks about his influence on, from the Platonists, what he got from the Platonists, and his love of Platonism. He spells it out. It's not guesswork. It's not very hard. All you have to do is know how to read, and then you can understand who influenced Augustine and in what way, to what extent, what were the things that he got. He explicitly lays it out. We talked about Platonism. We talked about Plotinus. We talked about the one and the god of Platonism. Right, That is the one that was adopted by Augustine, per Augustine's own confession. Remember that quote from his friend? He said, in your writings is Jesus, Plato, and Plotinus. Augustine, your your writings are just filled with Neoplatonism. Another thing we've done within the last year or so is talked about the early church fathers, Clement and Polycarp, who are the closest to the actual apostles, and we showed discursive uh, thought, uh, discursive knowledge, a knowledge that God gains described throughout their works as well. So they're talking about God in an open theist way, as opposed to the Gnostics of the t- same time period. And we have, in fact, on the God is Open page, an entire entire page dedicated to these quotes coming from the Gnostics and the early Christians talking classical theism. We're trying to categorize all all statements we can from all early church fathers, to the extent of our knowledge, not only church fathers, but uh, anyone who's commenting on Christianity, the Christian God, and their ideas of of who God is and what God's attributes are. And if they affirm eternal, ungenerated, non-discursive uh, knowledge, if they affirm those concepts or not. And we find that Clement and Polycarp Likely not. Ignatius, maybe. Ignatius's writings are all over the place. Iranius, definitely. Justin Martyr, who said that he came from the Platonists, probably, uh, if you look at his ideas of God's in, in unchangeableness, God can't change. God has to be a simple substance. You know, he's, he's adopting this Platonism. He's doing the same thing that Augustine did, where he's bringing in his concepts from Platonism of who God is and bringing them into the church. We had some fun with James White. We've made fun of him uh, several times. We, we talked about him with a Mormon, about his bad behavior and intellectual dishonesty, and we also defended James White too. It's, you know, um, some, sometimes sometimes people who you don't like, who you think are bad people, do things which are in fact defensible. So it's, it's not like if someone's like real bad, then everything they do is bad. Maybe like Hitler like saves a baby who's about to drown or something like that. You don't say, oh, that was a terrible thing because Hitler did it, right? Uh, no, you don't do that. You actually you could you can defend some act. Maybe if you like national highways, I don't know if the state should be funding national highways, but Hitler did a lot of those national highways. So you, if you like national highways, you probably will say that Hitler did something you did like. I wouldn't go around and say that if I were you, I'd say probably the optics, the optics on that's probably not very good. Maybe the optics of uh, defending James White's not very good either. So maybe, maybe it's more fun just to, to harass him and uh, make fun of him. And uh, I get mad at him, even though, even though you think the thing he did is defensible. It's not undefensible, but you know, to each their own, I guess. Oh, Ricky Grant's Pedals My Little Pony. This this was fantastic. I don't think this guy likes me. I think this guy watched it. I don't think he had a real response and uh associating his name with my little pony I, I it was hilarious the the episode itself doesn't actually talk anything about my little pony but i do splash his picture up there with a bunch of my little pony stuff and i make it look like his video was all my little pony like an advocate of it but it's not mentioned in the video at all so i i don't i don't think that guy was very happy with that video. I, I did make a lot of people happy who doesn't like this guy, this Ricky Gantz. I don't know who he is. I've only seen like one video of him. Uh, we also had a little duking out with some uh, Calvinists from time to time. Uh, Calvinists are just tend to be terrible, terrible people. That's one thing that you, you learn from frequent interaction with Calvinists They're intellectually dishonest. They're bankrupt. They don't understand your arguments. They don't respond to your arguments. It could be in part because they don't want to understand your arguments or else they'd have something that they'd have to respond against. This Will Duffy, his latest debate with uh, Tyler Vela. Yeah, Tyler Vela. We've made fun of Tyler Vela before. He got pretty triggered from our video making fun of him. Um, But terrible human being. In the latest debate, it was the debate on... Does the Bible teach that God knows the future? Tyler Vela didn't even make a positive case. He didn't bring up one verse to say he did in the questions and answers after he was pressed on it. When Will Duffy said, "You've never not argued. You've set out no case that God knows the future. You're just grabbing proof texts that you think might be my argument at some point and you're arguing against those. You're you're not arguing that God the Bible teaches God knows the future." So Will Duffy should have pointed out he wins the debate by default because there wasn't even a positive case made by the affirmative that the bible teaches god knows the future it's not it's not like a default thing like oh we just pretend that the bible teaches uh the future is known by god because uh we don't see good evidence that it doesn't that's that's not what you can do that, that's not what how we read the bible Especially in light of all these verses that they just want to ignore or reinterpret or call anthropomorphism. That's a, that's a terrible argument. But a very bad individual and his behavior was on display in that debate. The more and more I interact with these Calvinists, the more and more I see the, the, these are these are bad people. They're disingenuous. And so you can't treat them like rational, functional people. You need to treat them like cultists. They don't, they're, they're not independent thinkers. And talking about that, we did do a clip from uh, Kevin Thompson talking about that same issue. You're not dealing with thinking rational human beings. You're having a discussion with them do, is not fruitful because they, they, they can't think well enough to even understand and respond to the points you're actually making oh back in episode 257 we went to the society of biblical literature i need to do that again that i I had a blast it was a great time just my voice was gone i couldn't talk at all and so i'm just sitting there like rumbling like the entire time but a lot of good sessions i wish i would have taken better notes i i probably should have made my video responses each night after i got back but you know i was pretty busy i was I was in Denver, I was hanging out with family members and things like that, but a fantastic time. We learned quite a lot, uh, went to a lot of sessions, and we categorized and uh, collected most of that in that podcast. I guess that's back in 2018, so 100 episodes covers like a couple of years, something like that. We have uh, various episodes. Paul being an open theist. We have on um, Jesus being open theist. Did we go through Matthew to show that Jesus was an open theist? Remember, back to our definition. Oh, what's this? This is a James White podcast meme. So we got a lot of memes from Mean Monday. We talked to some atheists. We we explored the concept of ineffability, which is not a typical typical Christian concept that people are familiar with. They're they're not taught this at their churches. They typically you have to find them defined in a systematic theology because churches they don't operate on that level. And so people are surprised when these are the things that they find out that the church teaches. Because this is Platonism. This is Platonism. They've adopted the church has adopted Platonist metaphysics. And so it comes, it comes a uh, package, it's a package deal and you have to bring in all these characteristics, such as simplicity and ineffability and immutability. These types of things, timelessness, uh, a pure simplicity, uh, outside space-time, there, there's no discursiveness, there's there's no relationship you can't gain from outside yourself. These, This package deal is brought into Christianity. It's just not there in the Bible. You're not going to find these concepts in the Bible. You could try to prove text, but the context, typically typically uh, destroys any proof texting for these attributes i do like all the podcasts in which we talk about thought experiments how to think uh, how to overcome bias uh, intellectual tearing tests how to understand uh, how to process information and how to uh how to think rationally and logically i I think uh, just even aside not not talking about theology I think those types of ideas are useful just for operating in your day-to-day life. And this information isn't uh, geared towards a theistic thought. It's just geared towards operating with intellectual integrity. Intellectual integrity is something that we are big on. We need to stress intellectual integrity. We go where the evidence says. We don't uh, try to um, mis- miscast our opponent's arguments. We we need to understand it such that we we can emulate emulate our opponent's arguments to them, such that they think it's an accurate representation. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that when you're critiquing them, you have to use the same words that they do. Like a Calvinist will say, "Oh, God controls all things, but God's not the author of all things." Well, okay, well, what's the definition of author, right? Uh, And Calvin, Calvin called God the author of all things. So what's the definition of an author? And then you'll take their definition and say, well, that doesn't line up with what you just told me about God decreeing all things, even the secret thoughts of mankind. Right, And so there might be internal inconsistencies, but if you're able to emulate them to such an extent that a neutral third party is going to confuse you with a Calvinist, uh, I, th- I think you, you, you've got them down. You, you, you understand their thinking and their thought patterns. And we did a whole episode, I don't know where that is, but in which we did pretend to be a Calvinist and uh, made, made those Calvinistic arguments. And it's, it's a good thought experiment to do from time to time. A good uh, debate would be one in which two people take each other's sides. The others truly held positions and they try to argue it from the alternative position. I think that would be a, also a good, good experiment. We've dealt with Matt Slicks. So all these Calvinists, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're bad people. Tim Hurd, another bad person. It's it. They're all their these Calvinist actors are bad people. Uh, maybe not John Piper. Maybe he's okay, something like that. But these uh, internet celebrities typically terrible human beings, and it really shows in their interactions with others. And they gain cult-like status in Calvinism because they're followers. It it, it appeals to a certain personality. Calvinism appeals to a certain personality. It's, it has to be the personality that accepts cultism, who, who gets uh, lost in the, these uh, malu controls in which other people are doing your thoughts for you. You're adopting these systems and you become little advocates, right? You become very hostile towards anyone who presents opposing information. It's that type of personality, as uh, someone who thinks that uh, they're high and mighty. You, you get a lot of arrogance in Calvinism. And last of all, uh, we did a lot of work on Calvin and Servetus. I got that 12 points that I, I wrote up, which Calvinists who I interact with, they can't tell me which of my points are incorrect. They just hem and haw and say, well, there, there's there's a historical context that you need to understand those statements better or something like that. Well, no, I, th- I think we, we got it down. We, we've got the quotes from Calvin. We have Servetus's own letter, and we read that on the podcast as well, in which Servetus lays out his case what the the terrible things that they've done to him and who did it and calvin admits it in his own words this is a, definitely a murder the the case is closed calvinists do not have a case they do not have a case other than wishful thinking and that's a lot a lot of times when they're arguing it is wishful thinking anyways so a quick summary of what we have accomplished this uh, year two years the last last hundred or so podcasts we, we covered isaiah we we've got uh, the context of isaiah explored we've got open theists in paul and jesus we've, we've got a definition that's useful for debates about open theism a new definition for omniscience succinct in such a way that they can't use proof texts dishonestly they can't use proof texts to mean their special omniscience, which actually refutes their special omniscience. Uh, God watches the world. Well, that's not their omniscience that they want. That's, That's discursive knowledge, knowledge that comes to God from outside himself. That's God gaining information. That's open theism. And so having that definition really, really puts the ball in our court. We control the narrative when they have to defend their actual positions rather than being able to obfuscate or do the non-central fallacy when they're shifting definitions in from verse to verse in order to try to fit their theology, holding them to a standard. It's great. I love it. We've responded to the modalists. We've responded to the Calvinists. Uh, we've had debates with the Calvinists, uh, the Isaiah debate. We should probably do some more. But it's uh, probably another focus thing. Maybe does Romans 9 teach open theism? That would be a blast. We learned some things about uh, debating and posturing and uh, my technical issues maybe I'll overcome. But uh, I think it's been good. It's been a good few years. It's been a, a great time. I think we got a lot of useful information. Information with solid value that uh, people can consume and sourced for them so that they could uh, expand upon their knowledge if if they need somewhere to go, if they need more information. That's what we like to do. We like to source our information. Everyone, that one guy, he said, oh, you will claim to be an uh, expert on Platonism. Well, I don't, I don't think I ever claimed it, but I do read the experts. I do read uh, Plotinus, and uh, I do quote them. And so a lot of uh, my writings is just strings of quotes together from primary sources with a little bit of commentary but mostly focusing on the original sources so i guess call me what you want but uh my i am sourced so look at my sources and then tell me i'm wrong just don't uh no personal attacks there you get personal attack i guess i don't mind Oh, this one's important too. Uh, uh, episode 211, Enuma Elish in Parallel Biblical Language, which really shuts down Calvinist argumentation when similar language is used about uh, Marduk, for example. A similar language that if they're reading the Enuma Elish, they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, import their Calvinist assumptions onto that language. They special plead. Only when that language is used in such a way that could further their theological agenda, do they take those phrases in those fashions? When they're reading any other literature and come across that phrase, when they come across those phrases about people within the Bible, that people know all things, people know the secrets of the hearts, people know all things from the beginning perfectly, uh, they just read over, they just see that as a generality, they see it as a loose phrasing. But when it comes to, uh, to God, that definitely means their theology it's definitely special pleading and the more things that we find like the enuma leash with this parallel biblical language the less they're going to be able to proof text if proof text in the most vulgar way where they want some sort of small phrase without context defining that phrase they want that phrase to be their theology Anyways I think that we, we put out a lot of resources over the last uh, year or so easily accessible, indexable, searchable and as we gain this information as it's uh, readily accessible at our fingertips, as we're able to share, I don't know some people say they can't share my stuff because of the intros I need more Ricardo I guess uh, we, we as we do this, you know we, we can reach a wider, audience we can make more people think about what they believe and why they believe it we can bring more people to open theism to worship god the way god wants us to worship he wants a relationship right he wants us to pray with genuine prayer he wants us to communicate with him he wants a give and take relationship that's what people want people don't want one-sided relationships People don't want uh, computer-simulated dating sims, anything like that. And so, the more people that are brought into open theism, the better the kingdom of God. All right, well, I guess that kind of summarizes the last 100 episodes or so, so I'm going to leave you there. Questions and comments below, suggestions for future episodes you can throw there, or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.